You're listening to the Good Fight Podcast, where campus meets Christ. Welcome to episode 10 of the Good Fight Podcast. This is, uh, we're continuing our series on the Nicene Creed here, except today we will be looking a little bit at a phrase that's not actually in the Nicene Creed. It's in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Rory and Joel oh, are no. here, and they're simply shocked by this development. Yeah, good to be back. <laughs> um, so the phrase we're looking at today uh, is, he descended into hell. Other versions of the Apostles' Creed, we'll talk about what the Apostles' Creed is in a second and why we're suddenly looking at that rather than the Nicene Creed, uh, have this as he descended to the dead, he descended into Hades historically has been another one way of taking this phrase. Uh, and it's an interesting one because the Nicene Creed just tells us, as we looked at last week, that Christ suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, the Apostles' Creed basically summarizes everything that goes on. And the Nicene Creed is almost as old, but has this additional phrase in it in most versions. And it, this phrase seems to address what Christ was doing while he was dead, so to speak. Let's talk about this for a second. What is the Apostles' Creed? Where does it come up? What's its relationship to the Nicene Creed? I'll start. I can't say that I'm an expert on exactly how the Apostles' Creed developed, but it's very early. I, it's, bas- it's, it's significantly earlier than the Nicene Creed, mm-hmm. and it's definitely much more basic. It doesn't discuss quite the same level of nuance when it comes to the nature of Christ, his humanity, his divinity. It's just the bare bones, meat and potatoes of what Christ did during his life. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, though, because even though it's bare bones, it does get into like weird, fun details that we wouldn't really consider bare bones, meat and potatoes, you know, mere Christianity in a certain sense, right? Like this phrase for one, descend into hell, um, probably not the first thing that someone who's trying to tell you about the meat and potatoes of Christianity would 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 lead with. So it's fun to see these little curious details. Um, there's some there's a real fun like s- semi story tradition about how the Apostles Creed is like. I think so there's twelve like phrases, rough you know divisions, and so there is like a belief that holds that on the day of Pentecost. Each of the twelve apostles wrote one of the phrases. Um, I wonder which one wrote "He descended to hell" because it would have to be probably one of the more morbid ones. Maybe um, no, uh, I'm, I'm giving no. it a hard time. It's a, it's a. So, I think it would be important to discuss a couple couple terms that you see used in the Bible, and then also used more broadly within the context of the Bible to refer to the underworld or the dead, the afterlife, because there, there's a bit of confusion here, partially because you have a cross-cultural thing happening with the transition of the Hebrew Bible into the Greco-Roman world. So you are co- they're co-opting language that's within the Greek context. You also don't have a whole lot we just don't have a whole lot about the afterlife in the Old Testament. It, famously little, especially in scholarship, where it's hard to know exactly what people thought, where it does seem to be, you primarily you have the word shale, which you see used a lot of times in the Psalms, which could probably most accurately be translated underworld. Underworld. 
And what we're discussing here is specifically what it's talking about when he says he descended somewhere. He yes. Went, yeah. Where would he be descending? What sort of afterlife? And there is a reason why many of in the ancient Jewish context, and also not just ancient Jewish, but just ancient context in general, would have been more interested in that. And we discussed the Christus Victor nature of Christ's atonement last podcast and how it was very felt very relevant to the ancient peoples to have this spiritual victory of Christ over the principalities and powers over Satan over death and so this would have been part of that let's yeah let's talk a little more about that then uh we'll talk about you know what does happen after okay if you guys could this might be a little bit of a tangent but I think it'll be helpful Give me a map of the afterlife, right? What, what, what basically happens within the Christian context now, just so we have a sense sort of if this is a map where Christ is going and then whether Christ changed anything about it or whether the landscape changed because of Christ because there's a long tradition within Christianity that it did. Man, I wish I was taking that Dante course right now. Um, maybe I would have had all the Dante stages memorized, even though that's pretty not accurate and super poetic. But, um, yeah, I think roughly, and Roy, you should correct me on this because I'm not super sure, but I believe the idea is that pre-Christ, right, especially, you know, notably before his resurrection, there is one realm of the dead, as far as I understand, like Sheol, underworld type type place, um, where all the dead are gathered. But within this underworld, there's sort of a distinction between two groups. So we hear it in the parable that Christ is talking about, about Lazarus, right? The, the, the poor man and Lazarus. And he's talking about, um, there's sort of two areas. One, like the bad area where, you know, uh, it's, it's substantially worse, but notably the other referred to as Abraham's bosom, right? The place where those who kept the faith of Abraham are gathered um, to be kept for when Christ comes. Um, and then when Christ comes, we get your more traditional uh, heaven and hell as ultimate places of ending distinction. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this indistinct place of the dead is what maybe Rory, you were just talking about with the Hebrew term Sheol. Yes. What the Greeks would have called Hades. Yes. Uh, that, that's what we're referring to here. Mm -hmm. So, and hate, well, Hades was normally the term used to translate Sheol in the Septuagint. So in the Jewish context, that's what they saw as analogous Right. in the broader ancient world. Right. The Septuagint, again, being the main like Greek translation yes. of the Hebrew Greek Bible. Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that happened well before Christ. Mm -hmm. So prior, at, at this point, solidly in the second temple period of Judaism, where if you look, you can look at various passages in Scripture and say there's really, it's clear that many of the authors of Scripture did not know very much of yeah. what God had for them in the future after they passed away. You see this in Ecclesiastes, mm -hmm. where the author of Ecclesiastes seems to have very little sense of what's beyond, mm -hmm. but you do see a theme of trust in God, right. that there will be deliverance. There's also the theme of resurrection, where, uh, I forget where it is, um, but the passage that says that in my flesh I shall see God. Right, that's in Job. Yes, um, that's in Job. It's interesting to see because there's even this confusion about the afterlife when Christ comes, right? Notably, the Pharisees, right, one of the groups, do believe in the resurrection um, to a certain extent, um, and the Sadducees notably deny it, right? They, they say that Sheol and the bosom of Abraham is 
you know, as good as it gets, roughly. Um, so, um, and in uh, the Catholic, like, Bible, you know, there's a few more books, right? Maccabees, notably. Um, and Maccabees does also have this kind of hope and trust um, for, you know, the eventual resurrection, though it is, like, super veiled, and they're not sure. Um, notably, there's a passage uh, where the seven sons, right, um, the king is forcing them to eat pork, and they all deny it and are, like, viciously tortured one after another, going from eldest to youngest. There's a passage right before the youngest is about to be, you know, martyred in this way, and the king goes to the mother and says, okay, this is your youngest son, you know, go up to him and tell him, you know, eat pork, right? Like, just do it, right? It's, it's better to him be alive. But she says no, right? She she goes up, well, she says yes, she'll go up to the son. She goes up to the son, but she tells him, do not eat the pork, um, you know, and I will miss you on this earthly life, but I trust that the God uh, uh, of life will bring us together uh, or will bring, uh, raise us from the dead, something like that. But it's not super obvious. And still in Judaism, in rabbinic Judaism, uh, the resurrection of the dead is a tenet of faith. Right. Okay. So there's, uh, for At historical, least in cer- right. certain traditions. For historical context here, Joel's referencing Maccabees. These are often called the deuterocanonical books. Uh, between the Old and New Testaments, there was roughly 400-ish years, mm-hmm. and uh, Protestants do not usually include the literature from this period in their scriptures, picking up on some early traditions, but that's a conversation mm-hmm. for I bet we can both time. agree yeah. that there's some pretty epic stories in there. Oh, absolutely. And I, th- I think many, many Protestants avoid them unnecessarily, where they're, they are a great testimony to the perseverance of God's people under persecution and mm-hmm. also give you much more of a sense of the context of the New Testament. Right. So whether you think they're canonical or not, they're books of great value. Right. Okay, so there's some attestation to the belief in uh, some still hope in the afterlife um, in those books. And Joel, you were referencing the story of Lazarus and the rich man, which is from Luke 16 verses 19 to 31, there's some picture of a landscape of the afterlife there. But for the most part, the picture we get prior to the New Testament is kind of a grayish place with a lot of specters. There's long passages in some of the prophetic books about, you know, kings and rulers being down there. So the picture I'm getting, so I'm thinking of some uh, Greco-Roman epics, you know, Odysseus sailing, eventually making it to the underworld, going down there, Aeneas doing the same thing. You did have these images of heroes going down to the underworld, but t- t- uh, for Aeneas, it was like this portal in the ground that got opened for him, and he went down there. But typically, they didn't really leave a mark. They tried to. They tried to embrace their loved ones, but they couldn't. They didn't leave a mark. And what I'm hearing, or what the creeds seem to be hinting at, is that Christ, did he leave a mark when he went down there? Did this landscape change? And uh, what I'm hearing you guys say is yes, but... Why and how did that happen? Uh. I guess we can start with um, the idea that there are, it is mixed down there. So there are humans, good and evil, that are down there. So with Christ's descent into Hades, he, um, he's going into a territory that's not necessarily friendly. And you see this in second peter you see this in jude that it's not in the ancient conception it's not like this is just the spirits of the dead who are down there you have all sorts of any sort of being that rebelled against god many of them are cast down 
um, Jude talks, let's see, um, in Second Peter um, chapter 2, verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then you also see this in Jude. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So you have, you have the sense of there's a spiritual world. It, we don't know very much. It does, generally, when there is language about the spiritual world in the Bible, it, you really you don't want to take it too literally because it's, it's very symbolic, very... Um, you don't want to read too much into it, but you have the sense that Christ in his descent would be rescuing those who love him and in, I think, a lot of tradition proclaiming his victory to those who do not accept him. Yeah, there's one passage um, in the first in First Peter 4 that people point to as evidence of this sort of Christus Victor image. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the descent of the hell. Do you have that for us? Yes. So it's. I was trying to remember. Yeah, where that me was. too. I was trying to remember it too, so I had to go back and check my notes. First uh, Peter four eighteen um, through twenty. So he says, "For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey." when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Um, and there's varying degrees of how this is interpreted and, and what this might mean. Um, so you have people like Aquinas and Augustine who hold that what Peter is talking about, um, or you know, the author of First Peter, it probably wasn't Peter, but um, the idea that Christ, um, through... Uh, pre his incarnation, right? Christ as Logos, right? Spoke through Noah, through through his conscience and through all of the Old Testament prophets in a certain sense and proclaimed, right, um, the wisdom of God, right, in that way. That's sort of how Aquinas and Augustine hold that. There are a few other people who hold it differently, like early church fathers would say, no, like, this actually meant as though as Christ went to those who were both in Abraham's bosom and, and those who were not to proclaim the good news to them and if they might accept that they could enjoy eternal life. So those, um, so these are these are those who had died before Christ. Yes, coming. those who were being Sheol or Hades, right? The, 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 the realm of the dead. Yeah. Um, I personally favor the second approach just because I think the first one you sort of have to wrench that verse out of the rest of the paragraph for the rest and of the also paragraph. Also, out of the context of other passages. Agreed. Yeah. And even, I I'm pretty con- solidly convinced that. You can't explain away a lot of these verses that they're very, they're very spiritual and people, many people find them a challenge, mm-hmm. but um, one could not, I don't think you can ex- escape the reality that the ancient world had a deeply spiritual view of the world and they had this sense that Christ was triumphing over spirit, like evil, evil forces that had been cast down. Yeah. Sometimes we do run away from things like that. We do run easily. away, 
And I understand why some would be squeamish. Like this, this seems like really weird. Tale, you know? This sounds really weird. It just sounds like mythology. How, why would I believe this sort of thing? And I would just, I would want to tell anybody listening that you, do, you don't want this to be a stumbling block for many reasons. One is the world is a very strange place. It is. <laughs> yeah. So you don't, there are many, many weird things that have happened. And if, especially if, I, I, I don't know, my, I've heard pretty weird stories. I, I know people who've had very strange things happen to them. And I wouldn't, I don't think we should just automatically put on a very naturalistic lens and how we look at the world two it is true that um the the exact concrete reality of what that looks like i think is well beyond our comprehension we don't just because we can visualize it in a Mm -hmm. certain way given the language doesn't mean that you it really is representing super cleanly what Mm -hmm. would have been happening so you can try to fully acknowledge that if there's a spiritual world, then of course there's going to be spiritual things happening and lines of God's salvation plan that play out in the spiritual as well as the world we live in. You don't need to concretize it in a way that makes it just tied to some sort of superstitious um, yeah. view of the world or cosmology right. that we've, we have disbunked. Right. Uh, that's a point we've talked about previously on the podcast and this was coming to mind as we were discussing this that to the modern mindset it sounds very strange to be talking about a descent to be fair this is probably like the least strange of the things in the creed like you know we are talking about god becoming man here so you know let's let's (laughs) suspend our disbelief a little bit it's it is kind of funny how suddenly the disbelief kicks in yeah first even some christians where like oh Right, angels and like demons, <laughs> right. and like, well, if we just talked about the incarnation, the bears, oh my! You know? <laughs> For the ancient world, this would have at least kind of made sense. Uh, yeah. If if not, I mean, I mean, they might have taken issue with the other parts of the creed, but sure. you know, mm-hmm. so the idea of a descent into the underworld yeah. would have mm-hmm. made perfect sense. Doesn't Gilgamesh have something like that going on? I think so. So it was a very long-standing um, idea. It was, and th- the Greeks would have had a much harder time with the incarnation, and they did than these elements yeah right and i would also encourage like you know it kind of provides a sense of deep consolation at least to me that christ goes to those people you know long forgotten in a certain sense and preaches the gospel like that kind of makes sense in his approach you know of of once for all salvation um and i'm um for those of us who watch the passion great movie love that movie um a lot there are a lot of scenes in there that are trying to depict this like spiritual physical reality lines being crossed uh, and i think they do a pretty good job of it right so the temptation of christ or not the temptation sorry the agony of christ in the garden the passion adds a sort of shadowy demonic figure who like whispers things like you know mankind doesn't merit your you know they don't deserve this and at, at christ's um crucifixion when he when he's you know when Pilate is presenting him they have sort of like wispy figures moving throughout the crowd you know enticing the crowd to to yell crucify him crucify him and I think they do a pretty good job presenting this line and the blessed uh who I forget her name whose visions they took 
um, as inspirations for some of the scenes in The Passion. So things like those spiritual depictions. She also had visions of the sort of, of Christ descended to hell. And she tries to talk about it, but she admits that like, while I saw it clear as day when I was experiencing these moments, now in telling them to you, like, it's impossible to try and comprehend these things. Um, and so, yeah, so don't worry, you're not alone. No one has really ever fully understood this. Right. Uh, the, yeah, like I said, we've talked earlier on the podcast about when we use the language of father and son to describe God. It's not metaphorical in the sense that it's not true, but it's rather in the sense of using language we know from, so to speak, a lesser reality mm -hmm. to describe a greater one. Mm -hmm. Similarly here, again, C.S. Lewis makes this point about thinking in pictures. When you hear descent into <laughs> hell, you might think of Christ literally sinking downwards into, into, some, in, into, into the earth. And maybe that's the best we can do to kind of try and comprehend this. Uh, but perhaps it actually does communicate more yeah, right. truth than any other image that doesn't mean yeah, if you try to explain it away you can't get rid of some kind of an image if you say shifted into the shadow dimension you'll still have some kind yes, of yes and that's not going to be true either yeah <laughs> mental image so how you imagine it. okay that is so we've talked a little bit about this a little bit about the the afterlife how do things stand now in the afterlife who goes where why what happens when someone dies what is death lots of questions here mm -hmm. take them as you will yeah so i think the best explanation or definition of death that i've heard is the separation of body and soul like i think that's just really concise um image for the spiritual reality now of course there are some like biological metrics by which we can attempt to measure this right you can't really measure when the soul separates from the body but Brain death is one way that people think is like a is is a pretty good. Even though you do have instances of people coming back from seeming uh, from seemingly being brain dead, so the physical realities of this can be quite hard to measure. But death as that um, are pretty good pretty good indicators. Um, as far as what happens after, this is something that Roy and I probably disagree on. But the thing that we do agree on is that there are two ultimate destinations, right? Heaven and hell. Um, the realm of the saved and the righteous, right? Heaven. Oh, I almost mixed them up there. That would have been bad. <laughs> and, and the realm of the damned, those uh, apart from God, hell. Um, now, as Catholics, we would say that um, there are sin there, the only way to be in heaven is to be completely purified, completely you know, sanctified and clean. Um, and purgatory is the name that Catholics give to the place that, you know, you purify yourself before entrance of heaven. I think Lewis describes it as like a really hot shower where you prepare for, you know, the wedding feast with Christ. Uh, and you, and you take, it takes a really long time, can be pretty hot. But um, yeah, you see things like this. Um, that's where we get Catholics believe a lot in praying for the dead, praying that um, they might have speedy recourse out of purgatory into heaven um and, the, and i think i would say that we do have sort of a natural inclination to pray for the dead um in whatever way that is um and yeah so i guess i will put in my two cents <laughs> i would agree that separation of the soul from the body is a good it's a, a good way to def define death you also have people who believe in the tripartite nature of humanity, distinguished spirit and soul. And actually, similarly to some of these terms of Hades, Sheol, 
some of the terms regarding the spirit and the soul are very vague in scripture. And we, we get some pictures of what it's like to be in a disembodied state with, where Samuel speaks to Saul after his death. So there is this sense of con- some type of consciousness after death not being embodied, but it's ex- the exact nature of what is a soul, what is a spirit, what's the nature of spirit and soul, we don't know. We just know that there is some aspect to us that we can't, we can't easily measure and study um, equivalent to all the material world we see. That said, I think it's important to note that Protestants, they don't, it's not like Protestants don't believe in an intermediate state. We also believe that the final destination is heaven and hell, but I think there's generally much less of a willingness to speculate or what's considered to be speculation on the part of what takes place in that intermediate state. We know that Paul says to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So we see that Paul himself has a hope that in this intermediate state, before a final glorification, he's going to be with the Lord. And that we can hope for an intermediate time of peace and joy. And we also believe that ultimately, when the saints are presented before God in glory, that they will be pure. They will be purified by God, but Protestants wouldn't want to speculate about how God has to purify and, them. And Catholics would try to refrain from speculation, unless you're Dante, in which case, you know, <laughs> speculate you're, all you're you speculating want. Uh, like you're crazy. Yeah. But there is, like, you know, sometimes... this hornets are stinging <laughs> this guy on this level. Yeah, you know, that happened to also be my political opponents. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just, just give my boy Dante a break. Like, some of it is pretty, like, uh, profound and beautiful. Some um, of it is kind of weird, image. too. Some of it is kind of weird, but... Okay, is there... Th- strain in the bible that hints that well i guess my question is when we talk about heaven and hell again it's very hard to escape the mental pictures um on the one hand you see uh hell as the pitchforks and torches and everything and uh it will uh, be groaning and gnashing of teeth groaning and gnashing of teeth and you see heaven as all the clouds and the harps and angels (laughs) and stuff like that (laughs) but there's Uh. there's this there's the pictures, but there's also the sense that these are completely ethereal and ghostly. I guess my question is, isn't there, aren't there hints scripturally that, I don't know if I would say both heaven and hell, but perhaps heaven in particular is itself an intermediate state, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, prior to a final resurrection. And we'll talk about Christ's resurrection. It's a spoiler alert, but mm. yeah, well, what's going on oh, dang, there? Dang, I didn't know we could. A spoiler. I didn't spoiler. get to that part of the Gospels I yet. I didn't know that happened. Um, yeah, you do get that sense um, a lot from from Revelation and a lot, uh, I think, from some of the Psalms that talk about the creation of a new Jerusalem and a new earth in perfection, right? Um, and so I think you would get that. And Christ um, does, like, oh, man, we're going to get into his resurrection a little already. I, I feel so bad. But there is a, the, when Christ appears to his disciples again, right, post his resurrection, he's not intangible, right? Like, very clearly he emphasizes mm-hmm. his tangibility, right? He eats and drinks with the apostles. He, you know, has Thomas notably, like, touch his wounds um, in a very beautiful but a little slightly gross for me because I'm squeamish moment. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, so there is this like emphasis of of the corporeal. I think um, 
what I would you know put put my two cents in again um, as uh, like I think the Catholic Church would maintain that so heaven is intermediary as we wait for the reunification of bodies and souls right this death this separation is temporary it's not as though we would say that souls should be separated from the body no it's it's merely a temporary state and before they're and Protestants should agree with yeah. that as well don't want to be Gnostics right right what is um this has always just been curious for me uh what's the, what is the rapture what's the deal with that I'm I'm super confused um, on that is that like mainline is that like you know weird side group or it was pretty popular it's gr- it's become much less it is, popular it, okay. it, it is popular we will have an a, a great episode oh, titled he will come again to judge the yeah, living I, I'm getting ahead of myself getting right or ahead something of myself. along those lines but yeah there's this whole idea of what does happen when does the resurrection of the righteous and of the just and of the unjust happen the point I think we want to get at here is that it is for those who are in Christ, your existence is not going to be this weird ethereal thing with clouds and harps and stuff, but Christ opens up the door for heaven. We follow mm-hmm. in his train, and just as he his body was resurrected, so scripture repeatedly tells us we will be uh, we'll have yes. bodies like his. Whether you're a Christian or somebody who's interested in Christianity, thinking about Christianity, or just anybody who wants to know what Christianity teaches, you would do well to strip away a lot of those weird cultural um, stereotypes about what heaven and hell are. And I think a big process of learning what scripture says about these things is to strip away any sort of constructs that you might have in your mind of what it must be like, because there's a lot of uncertainty as to what, what God has for us. And uh, we have some very particular promises. We do have a promise of resurrection from the dead. We do have um, Christ as the first fruits of the dead. So we can see in the way that Christ is relating to his apostles as a picture of that resurrection. But no, please don't imagine little harps on clouds and your little. I'm, I'm not opposed to the well, harps. Not, I'm, I'm opposed to the little baby angel. You little know, baby wings, angels. But I do think there'll be some good music maybe. Oh, Actually, sure, sure. I'm just meaning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you read yeah, Far yeah. Side yeah, cartoons? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Don't think that Gary Larson is depicting. <laughs> Gary Larson is the Dante of our time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. He is. Um, he is. Um, people sitting around. I remember there's this one guy shooting a duck out of the yeah. sky and another's like bob i don't think you're supposed <laughs> to be doing that yeah. <laughs> okay so regardless okay, yeah hunting in heaven is a different question yeah. but from <laughs> all we've talked about <laughs> christ goes descended into descended into hell descended into hades descended to the dead something happened in the realm of the dead as a result of Christ's work, regardless of whether we include that as a particular article of the creed or not. There's some debate about whether it was originally in the Apostles' Creed. But what we can agree from Scripture, from the uh, and what Christians have agreed on historically, is that Christ's death affected a great change for those who had died and those who were going to die after that. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, this only happened because Christ himself died. He underwent this process of the soul leaving the body. Okay, why is that important? Okay, let's. So we talked about what he was doing. He was pretty busy after after death, apparently, according to these traditions. But from the human side, from for those of us um, still on Earth or those who are still walking the Earth, the apostles, for instance, all they saw was Christ died. 
and for those of us who are still alive to see someone die we don't know what they're it feels like we don't know what they're up to uh, it seems like they've just mm-hmm. they're just gone why is it important that christ so for those of us still alive why is it important that christ so to speak went ahead that he actually died that his soul actually left the body why can't we just say that you know he was kept alive somehow why is it important that jesus died for us for for one his we were talking about his atonement and the idea of the substitutionary atonement so his death in our stead is important for that there also is the aspect of um, part of just the curse that we bear is death as descendants as um, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, as C.S. Lewis likes to turn that phrase. Man, we are doing a lot of Lewis today. <laughs> and uh, the f- this is just such a basic curse that needs to be reversed. And um, one can only die to be resurrected. One cannot be, one cannot be resurrected apart from death. Mm-hmm. So I, w- there's the the aspect of him proclaiming his victory, which I think is important, but definitely not as central as the fact that he died mm-hmm. and the fact that he resurrected. Yeah, it's one thing, you know, if I'm confused on the street and I ask Rory to take me to, uh, 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 what's a good building for this example? Altrul Hall on Barnard's campus, though. Um, so. Let's, it's, it'd be one thing for me to say, hey, Rory, how do you get there? And Rory, you know, okay, well, for the sake of this example, let's pretend Rory has some idea. Or, or let's take low library, you know, much easier. Um, it's one thing for Rory to say, oh, it's over there, you know, you, you head out the ministry center, take a right, go down Broadway, and then go 116, take a right. And it's, a, it's another thing for Rory to say, come follow me, and then walk there, guiding me, walking with me, walking ahead of me to show me the actual way to get there, right? And and that's essentially what Christ does. Right. That's good because for one of my classes, I've been reading Plato's apology or his record of Socrates' apology before Socrates was executed by the Athenians. And, so, and Socrates ends on a note where he's basically like, I don't know what's going to happen after that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's probably something good. I hope it's something good. Uh, he says it at least can't be bad. Right? Yeah, at least can't be bad. But... So there's this attitude of... Bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so he has this attitude, okay, well, I don't know. And what you're saying here, Joel, is that Christ does know, that he kind of went before us, that the verse in Psalm 23, which speaks to the Lord as our shepherd and says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. It's not just poetic language in this case, but even with the threat of death or with death mm-hmm. itself, we can mm-hmm. trust that God triumphs over that um, with the... Uh, with the one who went before us and mm-hmm. returned victorious. We didn't actually discuss the term harrowing of hell here um, very much. Harrowing, this idea of plundering hell. It's the language we talked a little bit about last time. Mm-hmm. Christus Victor. Which is normally referred, um, referring to that idea that Christ literally went and declared his victory over right. And the, right. the angels who'd been cast down and, and let out let out all the captives as well mm-hmm. all the Freed human the souls captives. that were kept captive by by the devil by uh, in hell right yeah 
you can see how that would really like if you got the herring of hell you got the ransom theory and the like how all of those sort of play together so powerfully and influence so much early art and especially music. in the ancient and, yeah, world yeah right when they're going against paganism mm-hmm. and you see similar things in many charismatic churches where mm-hmm. when they're on the mission field in context where there is yeah. much more paganism right, and right. polytheistic worship so a lot of these themes come back to the fore like oh wow that christ christ has victory over these things that christ dominates these things for many of us in the west where those things are so far back in the rearview mirror it can be confusing to us why people would have mm-hmm. cared so much about this but you see it still today mm-hmm. for people where this is a central part of what they understand Christ mm-hmm. to have been doing because this is a central part of the world that they grew up in and still live in yeah right and so there's a lot of concrete hope there but we don't always experience hope and i guess this is the last point i want to touch on uh today on the experiential level, I was reading a book uh, by Alistair McGrath a little while ago. He's a theologian out at Oxford, and he made a point in it. That, nice Scottish name. Right. <laughs> right. And what he says in the book is that, in a sense, we're always living between the cross and the resurrection. Just mm-hmm. as if you imagine how the apostles would have felt, the Christ disciples, on seeing the one they had hoped was the Messiah, the one they had hoped was the Savior, just seeing him effectively killed in a brutal, shameful public execution and him being dead. It's like we're always on Holy Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, the day of the resurrection, where all we have to hold on to are the assurances, the promises that he will return. But in the meantime, we're racked with doubt, fear, um, uncertainty as the disciples no doubt were when or they saw to, Christ killed. Or to yeah. shift the metaphor to a parallel, Christ in his in his life modeled Israel. He, out of Egypt, I called my son. And Paul talks about how all of Israel was baptized in the Red Sea and baptism as a sign of death, a, a sign of death. And so you're in between baptism and, so you've, we're in the wilderness. We're in the wilderness between the death of baptism and then crossing the Jordan into the promised into land. Into the promised land. Wandering kind of in a middle state where we're constantly uh, in expectation, where sometimes we will catch glimpses of the promised land. Sometimes we will be strengthened again by glimpses of hope. But for much of the time, it feels like we're just, you know, put your head down and keep going. What would you say, what comfort can we take from thinking of Christ's death to those for whom, you know, life, unfortunately, this is a very bad paraphrase of one thing Socrates says in uh, Xenophon's version of his apology, but life is basically a death sentence because if you are born, you are going to die. And it's especially life according to the Christian And especially life in terms of the Christian ethic of dying to yourself, taking up your cross daily. We're being poured out daily, is what Paul says. It feels like we're giving up our lives daily. We're running the race. race. Where do we find strength? Where do we find refreshment? Where do we find strength to keep going as we wait for the final resurrection? 
as we kind of live in this world of death. And I don't know about you, but I've not experienced the runner's high when I'm when I'm <laughs> running. The it's not runners. it's not fun. But uh, as to where we can be strengthened, where we can find consolation and assurance in this life, uh, we see a lot of this in the New Testament and just how present the grace of God is with us even while we struggle and to cultivate a life of prayer and thankfulness as well as as the author of Hebrews says not forsaking the gathering together the brethren and how you can encourage each other with Christian fellowship and unity with the body and I would also add um, with that consistent worship um, partaking of the Lord's Supper and of the, um, just the promises that God uses to administer his grace to his people. So part of that is get being in Christian community, participating in the life of the church, um, receiving the grace of God through the preaching of his word, there, there, that he has given us things to strengthen us and encourage us and to communicate his grace to us in this life. Yeah. Yeah, one thing that we want to be very careful of is to not diminish, you know, hell in a certain sense, right? There is like a recent trend, you know, there's some universalists who would say when Christ descends into hell, he gets rid of it entirely. But you can see very quickly when you read the Gospels that, you know, Christ himself does not say that, right? He, he mentions that there's a place, you know, uh, where there will be groaning and gnashing of teeth. Right, and and it's it's worthy of note that that groaning or weeping of gnashing and teeth of teeth, there's the weeping, but also the gnashing. And gnashing is not a sign of just pain, but of anger. Mm -hmm. And I, f I think a lot of people miss that, mm -hmm. where there's this state of those who are still actively angry with God, and not reconciled to Him. So it's not it's not like these people are going to be wishing like oh I, I i love god i love all mm -hmm. this but and i in a sense no one's in hell who didn't desire to be there in some way not not necessarily you know all in that way and i don't yeah and it's not within our place to speculate that much on the nature of this punishment or the nature of um their their state but we can say that there are dire warnings for those who reject god and who actively actively rebel against his the love that he shows humanity the the promises that he offers the grace that he proclaims right but that's not where the story ends with Christ thankfully right when we look at the new testament sometimes it can be very worrying and we can get in our own heads with scrupulosity and that sort of thing about you know will i get to heaven or will i get to hell right when i remember when i was a kid um, I was always super, when I was a kid and I was, you know, super naive, I was like eight and I was like, oh yeah, Look, you know, being Christian is like the best thing ever. I used to look up like on Google, you know, why do people leave Christianity? What objections do people have to Christianity? And very common, like one of the first objections was like, it's a religion of fear, right? You go to heaven because you fear hell, right? And in a sense, you should fear hell. And, but I wouldn't say that's a reason to object against Christianity because of the message of hope that Christ brings throughout the Gospels, right? 
in t- in describing accurately the punishment and pain of hell, he makes the glory and the life that he promises of the resurrection that much more beautiful and glorified, right? And so the answer to these things, you know, Christ Christ answers himself, right? And the disciples talk about, you know, in John 14, very obviously, you know, Christ says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And thankfully, Christ has revealed himself to us as the way, the truth, and the life to eternal happiness. That's great. That's great. The thing that makes heaven heaven is that God is there. Mm. And it's not heaven just because, you know, it's this weird place again with clouds and harps or <laughs> lots of good things. Yeah, that's real nice. Lots, yeah, lots of good things. It's, it's because God is there. And sometimes following... Christians want to be where Christ is, and that could be in heaven, but it is also on the Calvary Road, is also on the cross, but it is also with the hope of the resurrection. If you're someone listening to this who's, you know, thinking about these things and, you know, concerned about, you know, what does uncertain about death, what we can say is run to Christ and, you know, run to his word, run to his people, find, find Christians. They're not, they might not be that cool, but they know someone who is, (laughs) it's the best kind of networking you can do at Columbia, (laughs) you know, and run to Christ. And that's what we'll say. You might be thinking, this is a bit of a weird, many who have gone before. (laughs) There are many, there are many that have gone gone through much worse than I'm pretty sure will be worse than anything that one of our listeners is going through. And they have been encouraged and had steadfast hope and joy through all of it. Right. Uh, some of you listening might think this is a bit of a weird topic for a Christian podcast around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. We did enter. Uh, Merry we, we did enter. A, we are in the season of Advent right now. And as um, I was reminded at my church last week, Advent is one of those other weird seasons of looking back at God's work in the past, but looking forward with great expectation to uh, God's work in the future, looking ahead to our remembrance of Christ's incarnation. So we're, in a way, in this life, we're always in the lurch. <laughs> but as we look ahead, don't worry, we will have an actual Christmas episode, and we'll talk <laughs> talk more about that. But there we go. We are kind of in the lurch. We're looking ahead. We're looking ahead to Christmas time, to remembering the incarnation. But more than that, we're looking forward to God's great work of restoration of life to a world of death. And to, and to bring in C.S. Lewis again, I think this is him, that people will accuse Christianity of not being of any earthly good because everyone's just thinking about the future. And he rejoins that it's because they're they're focusing so much on the future that they are of earthly good. I'm I'm butchering. He he said it in an eloquent way, and (laughs) I'm just communicating the, the bare sentiment that we this hope for the future and this absolute certainty and joy that we can have in our trials can allow us to truly be a light in the world to mm-hmm. truly serve our neighbor to care for the orphan and the widow as james says is true religion and 
to be of great earthly good, that we can lay down our lives in a way that makes this world a better place and to, that actually cont contributes positively. And Paul talks about this in Thessalonians. You see this in Ecclesiastes too, where <laughs> you have this nature of the, the work that God has given us. So we don't, we can also be grateful for, yeah, it's hard, but we can have joy in the labor that God has given us and that we can use this as a time to show um, to show what we have and to help others. Right. That's a good note, I think, to end on that, you know, as we walk this road, it is indeed our prayer that we can help point others uh, on the right, uh, along the right path and where that Christ has prepared for us. Okay. Uh, I think we'll end here. Thank you guys for being on the show. Um, and uh, thank you everyone who tuned in. <laughs>